0: Amen. If you have your Bible with you this morning, you can begin opening it up, and we are headed to the book of Psalms this morning, towards the end of Psalms to Psalm 127. We're taking a one-week break from our series through the book of 1 Samuel called Give Us a King to uh, consider what we have here in Psalm 127. As I mentioned, uh, myself and uh, Donna Peterson took uh, 12 students to middle school camp this week. Um, we had an amazing week together. Um, middle school camp is a special thing for me. If you don't know this about me, my background before planting our church here in New City um, has been primarily in youth ministry, so I did youth work, youth pastoral work from 2005 until 2015, and so I have not been to middle school or high school camp in about six years, and so I was reminded as I re the world of middle school camp this week that you can take the pastor out of youth, but you cannot take the youth out of the pastor. I loved my week with the middle schoolers. I loved the smelly cabins. I loved being awakened all night. I loved the meltdowns. I loved the chaos. I loved the not knowing how to manage a fun game and becoming way overly competitive over it. Um, I loved the cafeteria food. I loved standing in line for 45 minutes with a bunch of sweaty middle schoolers to get my breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I loved getting up early. I loved staying up late. I didn't love staying up late, but I loved everything about the week, truly. Um, I came back encouraged. Um, I came back refreshed, believe it or not, and I came back just reminded of the importance of raising up the next generation of our children, and even young adults, to know and to follow, to trust and to believe in Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. And I think camp is such an important part of that, and it was a special week to see our 11, 12, 13, 14-year-old kids who are before God in worship, who are standing up to worship the Lord and who are seated under the teaching and the authority of the Word of God. Morning, noon, and night who are learning how to spend time on their own with God in personal worship with their Bibles open and a pen in their hand, taking notes and studying and, and learning. That we are able to have conversations each night where we talked about how does the Word of God, how does the good news of the gospel apply to me personally? A love camp because there's those one-on-one conversations where you get to see the wheels turning for each one of those kids. How do I take what I'm hearing from God and His Word, and how does that apply to the struggles, the questions, the challenges, the joys, um, the plans that I have for my life? And these are incredibly important questions for 13 and 14-year-old kids. Um, This is the moment in my life when I began to ask a lot of those questions, and about age 16 came to give my life to Jesus. And there were people, uh, adults in particular, men and women, who spoke the truth of the gospel into my life. And I desire that not only myself, but, but for you and for us as a church, that we might be a part of raising up the next generation to love and follow Jesus, to be disciples of Jesus Christ. And, and this morning's passage is very much in the language of parenting. It speaks directly to fathers. It speaks 100% to mothers as well. But I want to remind you, as I did even last week, that it is not simply, if I'm not a parent, then I can check out. This word reminds all of us that we are all called in some shape or form to disciple, mentor, lead others to know Jesus more deeply. And so it may be your biological children. Maybe you're a grandparent and you're investing in your grandchildren. Maybe you're an older friend discipling a younger friend, or you have a relationship with other people that you are pointing them towards Jesus. Hear and be encouraged from God's promises and God's warnings here in Psalm 127 here this morning. Listen to these five verses from the Lord now. This is beginning in uh, verse one, Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest. Amen. Eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Let's take a moment. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the encouragement and the power that is contained herewith in your word. We thank you that the word of God is inerrant, it cannot err, it is infallible, it is without any error whatsoever. And so we submit ourselves to you. And to your word this morning, we thank you for the good news of the gospel that is contained within that Jesus has come to save sinners like me. And so we desire to learn and grow with you this morning. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Three applications this morning for us from Psalm 127 in these five verses as to how we can, by God's grace, raise up the next generation to follow Christ. The first is this. I I love the the sermon that John Piper uh, preached 30 years ago nearly. You've heard me mention it before. Don't waste your life. We're going to borrow his phrase, don't waste your life. We're going to look at three applications. The first is don't waste your home. Don't waste your home, I believe, is a direct application here of Psalm 127. Again, verse 1, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Psalm 127 is a psalm of ascent. From Psalm 120 through to nearly the end of the book of Psalms are songs of ascent. And that means that these were Psalms written by Jewish folks and they would use them as they ascended the slight incline or hill into Jerusalem as they prepared to worship the God, worship God especially on annual festival moments when everybody was coming into town and they would sing these psalms as they came up to the city and, more importantly, as they came up to the house of God, the house of worship. They were on a pilgrimage to go worship. Um, we know that Psalm 127 is one of the few psalms that was written by King Solomon. He is the third, as we will see as we get back to First Samuel next week. He's the third of only four kings that lead the nation of Israel before it crumbles and falls apart into at least two different kingdoms. So we have Saul, David, his son Solomon, and then his son Rehoboam, in which the kingdom will begin to fall apart. Solomon is the one who is responsible for building the physical house of the Lord, meaning the temple of the Lord. It was built around 900 B.C., and it's only going to stand for just over 300 years because the Babylonian Empire is going to come through in 587 BC and wipe out the temple, wipe out Jerusalem, Jerusalem, kill many of its people, and cart the rest off into a modified form of slavery back in Babylon. And we know from the scripture that that happens specifically because God's people ceased to obey, ceased to worship God, ceased to build their lives and their homes and their families on the solid rock that is... The Lord. This is not simply talking about a temple, though. It is talking about the house, the home, the family, the biological family. See, particularly in Jewish society, rightfully so, the home was the foundation of Jewish society. The home was the foundation of the city and of the nation. The family was the foundation. Not so in our particular culture, if you are not aware. Um, We are an extremely individualistic society to a fault. Um, Just in case you are not convinced that America is an individualistic society, if you are married, I will ask you one question. Did you choose your spouse? Most of you, probably the answer is yes. Yes. Not so in a non-individualistic society and in Israel, right? Your parents were the ones who primarily would choose your wife, choose your husband for you. America has gone full swing the other direction, but what I want you to see here there is that the family is the primary focus in this world. It leads us to a question. How does a city crumble? How does a nation crumble? How does a home crumble? Well, again, we know in 587 that Babylon came through and destroyed the walls and burned down the temple and the city, but there were spiritual, as always, there were spiritual reasons behind what was going on for them that we can apply to ourselves today. So the Bible says very simply, unless the Lord builds the house, unless the Lord builds your home, you waste it. Joshua 24, 15, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I love that word, that bold word from Joshua. When I was a kid in church, and I'm sure for many of you as well, I learned a song. The wise man built his house upon the rock, right? The wise man built his house upon the rock, and so on, and so on, and so on, right? It's built off of the scripture in Matthew chapter seven. The wise man built his house upon the rock so that when the waves and the floods came up, What happened to that house? Stood firm. But then the foolish man, and for all of us who have spent any time in Florida, we're like, are you crazy? The foolish man built his house on what? On the sand. And the hurricane came through, and what happened? It crumbled. Um, At camp this week, interestingly enough, even though we didn't get so much as a breeze from Tropical Storm Elsa here on the East Coast, up there in Gainesville, they actually got a ton of rain, and so the floods came up. Uh, And so we got to tube the Itchituckney River, which is a wonderful experience that I highly recommend, by the way. But the river was actually at flood stage. It was about five feet higher than I've ever seen it before. The floods are a real thing, and it takes everything out as it comes through. Uh, My wife and I, when we only had one child and vacation was still vacation, we went up to the Outer Banks, North Carolina a couple years ago. And um, we were right there on the beach, and we got to watch the most fascinating thing the week that we were there vacationing. There was this huge three-story house that at one point clearly was not on ocean's edge, but now the water did what it always does. It erodes the sand away, and this this huge house, the edge was actually being buffeted by the waves, and we sat on the beach for hours and watched this three-story house literally crumble and fall into the ocean because the foolish man builds his house upon the sand. Any other foundation that you build upon other than the Lord Jesus Christ, it will crumble. We chase so many other things, but anything other than being built upon the Lord Jesus Christ will crumble. Paul Tripp has an incredible parenting series that I highly recommend for your family or your city group to study called Getting to the Heart. Of parenting, getting the heart of parenting. Um, And he gives, uh, basically right at the beginning, he gives us this idea. He says, your kids, all of us, were born into a world of authority. That's not a popular notion, by the way. Your kids were born into a world of authority, not ultimately you as parents, although certainly you do exert authority over your children, but ultimately your children were born into a world of authority under God. And they need to learn that from you. And so you as a parent are a steward of that authority. Whether you be father or mother or grandparents, or you again are a pastor, mentor, leader, discipler, we ought to raise our kids, whoever you are investing in, to understand that there is only one authority, that authority is the Lord. That it is a joy to be in submission to him, and that if we are not in authority to him, you have wasted your time, you have wasted your home. So why are there broken families? Why is the divorce rate in our country at least well over 50% among believers and unbelievers? Why is it that we are more than ever not a faithful generation, but a fatherless generation of absentee dads or parents who are missing in action, who are there physically but checked out emotionally and spiritually because we didn't build on the foundation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Powerful illustration from the Old Testament of this. In Genesis chapter 11, we get this very curious story. It's called the Tower of Babel. Remember the Tower of Babel story? So in Genesis chapter 11, humanity has decided to build some sort of a city or or particularly a tower. And they're going to do this as an altar or a tribute to the greatness of mankind. We're going to stick it to you, God, and show you how incredible we are. We're going to build a tower all the way up to you, all the way up to heaven, says Genesis chapter 11. Now, in modern times, we happen to know that from here to the edge of the atmosphere is a short 62-mile drive, flight however you choose to get there, 62 miles to get to the edge of the atmosphere. And so we're going to build a tower to the heavens. That's great. We know a lot about that era and the thing that they were building historically is called a ziggurat, and ziggurats were anywhere between one and two stories tall. Hmm, 62 miles, two-story house. Their arrogance towards authority, in that moment manifested itself in a reality of total failure. And we know that the Lord came in and spoke into and changed that situation. Unless the Lord builds the laborers' labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, it says, you stay awake, you watch over it in vain. So why does our city, our county, our nation, our world fail? Why does injustice and sin run rampant? Why is abortion and sexual abuse and abandonment and violence and racism and generational poverty and greed and theft and laziness a thing? Why are dirty politicians and corruption in the city and dishonest businesses and an education system that teaches that there is no God and more importantly churches that have forgotten about the authority of the Word of God? Why does it happen? Why does it feel like, especially in the last two years, our society has come unglued a little bit? Because we reject the watchful care of a good and loving Father. Unless He builds it, you waste it. Build your house on the solid rock of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Number two, don't waste your work. Don't waste your work. This passage wants to talk to us about work. I will offer to you a phenomenal Christian book on the topic of work and understanding it biblically and the joy and the importance and the power of it. It's a book by Tim Keller called Every Good Endeavor. Every Good Endeavor, phenomenal book on work. Highly recommend it to businesses, businessmen and women, just to be able to talk about how does the gospel speak into our lives at work. But I'll give you a highlight. I'll, give you, I'll let the cat out of the bag. The Bible has a lot to say about work, your work, your career. Um, see, because God created, God worked for six days, and he made the world. And in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 1 says that when God finished his work on the seventh day, he rested. He took a Sabbath, not because he needed it. He wasn't tired. He's was giving us an example to follow. Genesis 128, he gives the first command to humanity and he says, be fruitful and increase in number and rule over all my creation. That's a form of work. And so here, notice this, before sin enters the world, we have work, we have a command to parenting, and we have jobs before the fall, before sin enters. You ever think about that? In a perfect world, Adam and Eve worked. It was a joy. It was life-giving to work. It was a necessary part of perfection. And then sin enters, and obviously we mess it up, just the way that sin messes everything up. But there, by God's power and under His authority, there was glory in work. And we're told here that God rewards, even in a broken world, God rewards us when we work for and under Him. Verse 2, He gives to His beloved sleep rest. But, verse 2, Psalm 127 and verse 2, this caution, it is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. It is in vain. Off the top of your head, what other book besides this Psalm 127 did King Solomon write? There's two One in particular matters at the moment. What else did Solomon write? Well, Ecclesiastes. He wrote a little book called Ecclesiastes. If you want to ruin your day, sit down and roll through Ecclesiastes. Twelve chapters of just, wow. Um, When I was in about fourth grade, my parents uh, went for a, a weekend away, and my grandmother came to stay with me and my brother, and I just had a whim that I'm going to start doing a Bible study by myself. So I picked up the Bible like most kids do. I flipped it open to the middle, happened to land on Ecclesiastes chapter 1, and thought, boom, this is where I'm going to start. And I read all 12 chapters, and I came to my grandmother later that evening, probably shaking. Grandma, what does this mean? I don't understand. She's like, what are you reading? It's great to read the Bible. I'm reading Ecclesiastes. Oh. Okay. (laughs) I don't remember where she took it, but I threw her in the deep end of the pool that day. Because King Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes the word meaningless or vain, vanity, 37 times. Life is meaningless. Life is vain or vanity. In Psalm 27, he says the same thing three times, that you do what you do in vain. Now, Solomon believed in the Lord. He made a lot of mistakes, but he believed in the Lord. He is not saying your life is a joke, but he is making an important point. And he's talking here about anxiousness and working in vain, getting up early, staying up late, and losing sleep. And when we focus on ourselves and working outside of God's plan for work, we begin to experience this. Even in our best efforts, the first year of us planting this church, um, I was lacking in sleep. There was an incredible amount of anxiety in my heart as we were doing all the growing and all the growing pains of trying to start and establish a church. And I will tell you that as my focus on myself and my abilities and my tasks increased, my anxiety increased, and my sleep decreased. But what he's saying here is that there is a joy and a rest and a restfulness that we can in some way literally and figuratively sleep well when we put our trust in the Lord. All of us have done the sleepless night thing. We've done the anxiety thing. If you have children under the age of 18, we've done the sleepless thing because they can't sleep. The psalmist is saying that if your life is consumed by your work, If you have made a good thing more important than God, then you are getting up early and staying up late in vain because the authority has now been reversed. God at the top and in submission to that, your work. So if you are working very hard, but if Christ is not the center of it, then are you wasting your time? What did Jesus say? Look at Matthew 16, 26. It should be a humbling passage, especially for Americans who are so incredibly driven towards their nine to five. For what will, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Do you understand the question? You can gain Amazon. What if you lose your soul in the process, or you lose the souls of your children in the process? What have you gained? Nothing. He who dies with the most toys still dies. At home or on the job, your work is wasted if you do it without God. But work done for the Lord is a joy and life giving. And so he describes anxious toil again, meaningless, vanity, wasted life. Much of what we pour our lives into is useless in the light of eternity. So we should ask ourselves the question, what am I really getting up early for? Is it for the Lord or is it for the thing? What keeps me up awake at night? Is it the Lord or is it the thing that I am chasing? What are you killing yourself to accomplish? How does your effort towards your career compare with your effort towards your kids? something that we must consider. No profession is exempt from the danger of daddies or mommies who chase their professional idols to the exclusion of chasing their kids. My job, pastor's kid, PK, is not a term of endearment in our society, is it? It is a term of scorn. Because there have been so many daddies who were pastors, who forgot about their children in the process and actually, as Ephesians says, exasperated their children and pushed their kids away from God by putting the church, their job, their career first, and their kids second. This is not the order that we are given. And so there are kids who maybe are now adults who are victims of a guy who put his job before his children that's wasted work. Look at Solomon's life for a reference. In 1 Kings 11, we get a summary of Solomon's life. Started well, ended bad. In verses 1 through 8, it says that he traded his wife for the idol of sex. He ends his life with 700 wives and 300 concubines. What? (laughs) In verses 9 through 13, he traded his children for the idols of money and power. And he didn't pass on his relationship with God to his children, and so the nation of Israel literally falls apart when his son Rehoboam takes control. At home or on the job, your work is wasted if you do it without God. And and the order of operations here is so clear throughout the Scripture. The order of priority, God first, your family second, everything else, job, career, third. Don't mix them up don't mix them up. Third and finally, don't waste your family. Here, the Scripture wants to talk very specifically about our kids. Verse 3, behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Children are a heritage from the Lord. Heritage, what does it mean? It literally means a reward, says this verse. It can also be translated blessing or an inheritance. They are a gift, an incredible gift. From who? From God. To who? To you as parents. I cannot think of an uglier word in my own life and experience than the word neglect. When we neglect the gifts that we have been given by God, called to stewardship of those children, to love them, to serve them, to care for them, to raise them up, to know their good and loving father, neglect is the antithesis of all of that. And it begins by not recognizing that our kids are an inheritance. They're a reward, not a punishment. Evangeline woke me up at 2 a.m. screaming this morning, I don't care she's a reward. She's a blessing. Um, Alana and I didn't get married till I was 30. I've told you that before. Or I'll keep telling you. I, that was not my idea. It was not my idea to wait until I was 30 years old to get married. Um, I remember almost 15 years ago standing out on the beach talking to a mentor of mine at the time and saying to that mentor, I would trade anything to have a family. It was a deep desire in my heart and I was absolutely frustrated with the Lord that I had to wait so long for his timing to bring her into my life and then to bless us with children. But my wife and my children are a reward. Amen? They're a gift. My wife is a gift. Wives, your husbands are a gift. Your children are a gift. If you're a single and you desire those things, be patient. God knows the desires of your heart. He will take care of you. If you're joyfully single, praise the Lord. Use that singleness to disciple and invest in others. But they are a gift. The first half of Psalm 127 is about building. In Hebrew, the word is bonim, B-O-N-I-M, bonim. The second half of Psalm 127 is about sons, children. The Hebrew word is banim, B-A-N-I-M is an intentional connection here in the Scripture. Both halves, beginning and end, the bottom line is cherish your children by being a parent by God's great grace and mercy and power. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter six. This is verses four through nine. Great instruction manual for us. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. That's where it starts. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And shall talk of them when you sit in your house. And when you walk by the way. And when you lie down. And when you rise. If you're asleep in bed talking in your sleep, let it be about Jesus. Verse 8, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The Israelites understood this both the heart of it and literally followed all those instructions. But the instruction is talking and walking, leaving a legacy for those that you invest in, the next generation, to understand relationship with God. Talking is praying to the Lord, responding to His Word, talking about the Word of God with your family, sharing with them your testimony, sharing with your family your faith journey, its ups and its downs, your questions and your joys. Teach your kids by telling them about your relationship with God. But then there's the walk, right? So many in this generation will walk away because the talk didn't match the walk, we are called out, and rightfully so, as believers in Christ when we are hypocrites. Now, first of all, I am a hypocrite. That's why I need Jesus to save me. And hypocrisy in the church and among believers does not in any way, shape, or form invalidate who Jesus Christ is because Jesus was never a hypocrite. But second of all, because of who Jesus is, what he's done for me and the Holy Spirit that he's placed inside of me, I can, by his grace, begin to match up my talk and my walk so that when I make mistakes, I can and desire to repent in front of my children and my wife. Talked about that last week. It's worth mentioning again. I can pray in front of my kids. I can read the scripture in front of my kids. I can, when they mess up and they sin, wait, your kids sin? (laughs) Yes. I can walk with them through that process of talking with them about their sin, of punishing them, and when they experience that consequence, I am trying to teach them about the reality of God's forgiveness towards them and my forgiveness towards them. I'm teaching them to talk to God even in the moment of that punishment. Let's pray. I'm teaching them to repent. I can't change their heart. That's God's job. But I'm teaching them what it looks like to come to the Lord and say, God, I'm sorry that I hit my sister again. Please forgive me. Help me to have self-control by the power of your Holy Spirit. And they're learning those things because if we don't teach them, who will? Family meals, spending time together. Turn off the TV, throw the phone in the lake, spend time together. Your family needs dinner times together more than they need Disney trips together. They just do. They need time with you around that table so much. This again is not limited to your kids. You can be a spiritual father or mother, discipler, mentor. Wouldn't it great to be a spiritual parent and lead someone to Christ? Be a spiritual grandparent, lead someone to Christ who then leads someone else to Christ. This is not limited to simply your biological children. This is a calling from the Lord. He says, unless the Lord does it, though, unless the Lord does it, it is in vain. This is not do better, try harder. As always, hear from the scripture God knows you need his help. Do you? Are you excited about the fact that you cannot do this on your own? You can only do this by the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. We want to be a church that rejoices, rejoices in the fact that we cannot do it ourselves because we have a God who is faithful who can do it for us and in us and through us. On my own, I'm broken. We are helpless. We cannot get out of our own way, and Jesus offers us new hope, new life. Jesus is the source whereby our city becomes a new city. It's a part of the vision for our church coming out of Revelation 21.5 when Jesus at the end of the Bible says, behold, I am making all things new. Yet nothing has shown me my selfishness more, by the way, than two things getting married, and having children. <laughs> oh, I'm selfish. Nothing has taught me more about the servanthood of Christ than two things, getting married, having children. If you are not sure what the idols you struggle with are, look to your children, because what they struggle with will inevitably be what you taught them. So I need God's grace <laughs> for all of this. So will you put your trust in a God who can do for you what you cannot do yourself, what you will not do yourself? And when you think about your kids or those you're discipling and investing, and in, remember, again, God loves them more than you do. What a promise. What a joy. When I fail in my love and affection, God is faithful to love them through This whole understanding of grace, it's not a natural thing. And it really, it affects men and women too. The lie of manhood, right, is I can do it myself. I don't need no instructions. Just give me that thing. I'll do it myself. You need the instructions. The word of God is your instructions. The Holy Spirit is your guide. True manhood is saying I submit my life to the authority of God true womanhood. Your culture says, I'm a Miss Independent woman. I need your help. I need no man. You like that? That That's good, right? (laughs) It's not true biblical womanhood. True biblical womanhood is to be a woman after God's own heart. I need you, Heavenly Father, And I rejoice in having you as my heavenly father, as my leader. My identity comes from you. My calling, my purpose, my desires come from you and I want to submit my life to you. It's all about leaning on Christ, isn't it? John 15, five. I am the vine, says Jesus. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me And I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So maybe today is the day. Lord Jesus, I need you. I've tried to be a branch unattached and it doesn't work. I need to be tied to the vine that is the grace and the mercy and the person of Jesus Christ. The man who is God, who gave up his throne in heaven and came to earth, lived the perfect life in your place died on the cross in your place, rose again three days later, conquering sin, Satan, and death for you so that you too can be separated from your sin, that you can be forgiven of your sin, that your failure in every aspect of life is nailed to the cross and is forgotten. The Bible says that as far as the east is from the west. Maybe today is the day that you lay down your self-effort and you come to rely on the effort of Jesus Christ, his forgiveness, experience his freedom, his real power, his real life. It's very simple. Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. Forgive me. I want you to be my savior. I want you to be my Lord. Maybe if you're a believer this morning, you may have prayed that prayer before. You know that you are saved. You know that you follow after Jesus, but you recognize as the place in your heart and your life where you have failed and struggle. Asking for forgiveness. The forgiveness is immediate from Jesus, but the experience of being able to go back to Jesus every day and say, Lord, I just just want to admit again freely, I've messed up and I need your help. What joy there is in confession. What joy there is in coming to Jesus and remembering that his grace is always sufficient. It propels us into action. That's where this verse ends. It says, like arrows in the hands of a warrior. What are? kids are, like arrows in the hands of a warrior. What, what does an arrow do? It destroys the enemy. It kills the enemy. It's sent out, and it kills the enemy. Why did God give you children? To send them out into battle, to win the victory in Christ, to destroy The enemy, with real weapons? No, no, no. With the good news of the gospel, that is the great commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them everything that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. God gives us our kids so that we can prepare them for his mission there's a little quote here from Reggie Joyner in a book called Parenting Beyond Your Capacity. I, I love this quote. We're fine if our children never climb a mountain as long as it guarantees they never get hurt. But what if your children were made for the mountains? The ultimate mission of the family is not to protect your children from all harm, but to mobilize them for the mission of God. It is possible to hold on to our kids so tightly that we forget the ultimate goal of parenting is to let go. That's a neglect, to launch them towards the same mission that you and I have called to be a part of. Trusting that God is a good and loving Father, His gospel is the same, His word is the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. That's why the mission of our church is to glorify God by being and making disciples or followers of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the man and the church whose quiver is full of arrows, disciples who are living on mission for Christ. And then it ends by saying, he shall not put to shame, be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies at the gate. This is a reference to the book of Nehemiah Because after Babylon's destruction of Israel, they returned to rebuild their city, to rebuild their homes, to rebuild their families, even to rebuild the temple. They had been destroyed by wickedness, but God was doing a work of restoration. And as Israel rebuilt their homes and their city by the power of the Lord, they worshiped and obeyed the Lord. Fathers stood next to their sons, says Nehemiah, as they built and as they fought. Listen to how they did this. It is our marching orders. It is the picture of God's call for parenting, for work, and for families, and for our church. Nehemiah chapter 4, let me end with this. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped to his side while he built. Build your family on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. Amen.